Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer Clark Germain. But first of all, big news, kind of, sort of, the Grammys have made a number of changes in the last week that has to do with the number of nominees on the biggest awards that they have. Awards like the Top Album and Song of the Year, Record of the Year, and Best New Artist, the nominees have increased from five, which has been standard for, well, 50 years, to eight. The other 80 categories stay the same at five. Uh, This is supposedly the biggest change that the Grammys have made since the introduction of the Grammy Awards in 1959. But that's not saying much. (laughs) It turns out that this was an effort to diversify a little bit more and to get more female nominees. But I fail to see how this is actually going to work. The whole idea was that there wasn't enough women in these top categories last year. But the fact of the matter is, it also helps if you have more women voters, and I don't know if that's actually happened. So this is probably one of those things that's symbolic at best. I don't see how it's going to change things, but we'll see. Now, there's a few other changes that actually did make some sense. Music supervisors will now be considered for Best Compilation Album. And that's pretty important because up until now, they haven't been part of this or they weren't able to be part of it. And they should be because music supervisors, in fact, are the driving force sometimes behind some compilation records. Also, restoration engineers are now eligible for best historical album. And again, this was kind of an oversight that shouldn't have gone on for this long. Restoration engineers are really important to any kind of historical recording and historical release. So, in fact, this is maybe some justice is finally being awarded. But, again, (laughs) there's a lot of problems with the Grammys. I'm no longer a member. I resigned my membership, oh, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. And it was sort of out of frustration. I didn't feel like I was helping anything. One of the problems with the Grammy voting is the fact that there are so many submissions in especially the major categories that inevitably what you end up voting for is the most popular artists. And then there are the rumors that the major record labels, in fact, have gamed the system a little bit by getting all of their people fake credits, people in the mailroom and assistants and things like that who've never worked on a record, but they wind up giving them some fake credits in order to make them voting members and vote for that particular label's artists. So you look at that and you think, well, if that's the case, uh, maybe there are better ways to spend your time. Frankly, for me, it's one of those things where I have not been able to come up with a better answer. If someone had asked me how to improve it, I can't tell you. But I know one should exist and there are smarter people than me that are supposedly working on it. But for now, it's not very symbolic of what's best in our industry and what's happening. So we'll see if increasing the nominees on top album and best song, record of the year, and best new artist, things like that actually help. I have my doubts, but we'll know in February. If you have any questions or comments, 
Send in a questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop and Q&A webinars, and for a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, it was just a gear fest, Sweetwater's yearly event that's very similar to an AES show or an AM show. And it's really fantastic. I encourage you to go. It's not easy to get to Fort Wayne, Indiana, but that being said, once you're there, it's well worth it. There were some interesting rumors that were floating around. I have not been able to confirm these rumors. And what I'm going to tell you about is JBL Pro and what I heard from several people Again, unconfirmed, but I tend to think they're probably true because it's coming from people that are in the know. JBL Pro has laid off 75% of their engineers. They were either laid off or they left for greener pastures. Now, of course, Samsung bought JBL, bought Harman, which owns JBL, a couple years ago, 2016. And even though Harman, again, which owns JBL Pro, is a independently operated subsidiary, it appears that Samsung is putting its corporate fingerprint on the company anyway. And one of those things that seem to be happening is the direction of audio in the company is going more towards lifestyle and consumer electronics and less on professional products. And we're starting to see that now if you look at some of the releases, some of the product releases over the last few months. And at Infocom, you find that there are things that have to do with lighting and boardroom audio and home audio and all sorts of things that really don't apply to pros. So will JBL Pro be spun off or will it cease to exist? I don't think anybody knows except some of the execs within Samsung. But whatever the case, JBL Pro has been around for a really long time. It's always been a company that's made some great products. People are still using their products. There may be some other things that work better in certain cases. But in terms of speakers, boy, they've always made great stuff that definitely works and works for a long time. So we can only hope that the company sticks around and continues to do what it's always done, which is to make great products that pros want to use. My guest today is engineer Clark Germain, who started in the business doing live sound around Hollywood for the likes of X, Circle Jerks, Agent Orange, and Social Distortion, to name just a few. Eventually, he began working at some of Hollywood's most prestigious studios on projects by Michael Jackson, Tina Turner, Lionel Richie, Madonna, U2, and many more. Since going independent, Clark has worked on some other great projects in studios all over the world with the likes of Herbie Hancock and the Counting Crows, The Fray, and Sting, among many others. But eventually, he made the switch into the world of film and television, recording and mixing scores for Michelle Columbier, Bill Conti, Ira Newborn, and others. In fact, he recently won an Emmy for his scoring mixing for the Amazon series Mozart in the Jungle. We spoke via Skype from a studio in the Hollywood Hills. Tell me about your background. How did you get into business? Well, I got in the business. I used to race bicycles. In the mid-70s to late-70s, I was a bicycle racer. And another friend of mine who was racing said, you know about electronics and you play guitar. Why don't you become a recording engineer? And I thought, what is that? So at the time, there was only one school. I looked for schools. 
It's called the Recording Institute of America. And I had to drive from L.A. down to Santa Ana um, two nights a week while I was in high school and then on the weekends to take these courses to get my recording engineer diploma. And then, then what happened? Uh, well, then I took my, my new diploma and <laughs> I went around to all the studios in town and I got a job cleaning bathrooms at Hollywood Sound Recorders, which at the time, 1980, 79, was one of the top R&B studios. A uh, lot of records happening there, Commodores, Crusaders, uh, Jackson 5, worked on the Jackson 5 Triumph album. A uh, lot of different stuff coming in and out of there. Michael Jackson, we worked on a tune called I Want Muscles with Diana Ross and Michael. Uh, Peebo Bryson, a lot of different people coming through at that time. Wow, very cool. I read somewhere that you did sound reinforcement at some of the clubs around town for a little bit. One of the first things I did was I was putting out resumes and not getting anywhere. I was very into the punk rock scene in the late 70s. So I went to a place called the Hong Kong Cafe oh, yeah. and met a guy named Paul who was one of the live sound guys there. And we became friends and he said, you can just take the nights that I don't work. So I was a 17-year-old kid doing sound for the likes of X and the Gears and uh, Agent Orange and all these big punk rock bands at the time. Um, and the club owners assumed I was 21 because it was a 21 and older club. So they would serve me drinks and I would do live sound until one in the morning and ride my little Honda 90 motorcycle back to my parents' house and go to high school. <laughs> well, you, you had an interesting high school life, apparently. I, I had something similar, but, well, I was gigging when I was 15 years old. I was gigging four nights a week. I was in clubs as well and uh, got to the point where I was making a good amount of dough back then. Mm -hmm. That led me into a career as a musician first and then into the studio afterwards. But it's one of those things that if you start early, it's hard to, hard to stop, as you well know. You know, it's pretty much uh, our fate is set. It's, yeah. You know, I, it's something I love to do. I, I went uh, from there. I was at Hollywood Sound for a short while, but then I went to a place called Mystic Sound, which was a local small studio on top of a bank uh, at uh, Selma and Vine. Mm-hmm. And Doug Moody, uh, he, we were doing a lot of punk rock, local punk rock records there. So I was excited by the music I was working on, but not by the quality of the records per se. So that's when I went back to Hollywood Sound. Did you find that working in a club and doing sound there, doing live sound, helped you in the studio? I think if I had been more advanced at that time, it might have. I, I was just winging it doing those original live sound gigs, you know, I mean, I knew a bit about sound, but I really didn't know much. So I don't know whether it helped me that much. My passion was for the studio, not necessarily even doing the live sound. So as soon as I was able, that was just a stop gap until I could get into the studio. Mm. And the reason why I ask is I've talked to some people that have started in sound reinforcement and made the change and said that it really helped them and that it got them used to doing things quickly as compared to under the microscope in the studio where you can take more time to make things a little more perfect unless you're doing something like commercials or something. I, I remember doing commercials where 
we had three hours to do everything. First hour was, and you probably did this too, first hour is recording, second hour is overdubs, third hour is mixing, and then everybody was gone. And everything had to work yeah. in that time where you had to figure out a way around it. Funny enough, I'm, I'm working on a record with a client that is used to doing commercials. She's a singer. And so she came to me with this whole scheduled out, well, I'm going to sing for 14 hours and then I'm going to give you 21 hours to mix. And I just looked at her and I said, I'm sorry, it doesn't really work that way when you're making a record. It's, wow. You know, to that, to that end, I ended up doing, once I had gone to Europe and come back and worked at Oceanway Recording, I ended up doing a lot of live to two track records. So that is the same thing. You have to get it all set up. You don't really sleep the night before. You walk in, they play as they're rehearsing the song, I'm rehearsing the mix, and at the end of the day, you walk out with a record made. Were they jazz records? For the most part, but we did some uh, some fairly large, I've done some jazz ensemble with a full orchestra with David Benoit that way, mm. as well as some uh, some more pop type of things with a full orchestra and a singer doing Frank Sinatra stuff, Frank Sinatra style, big band stuff. Fun. Wow. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, how long did you get to set up and what was your sound checks like? Did you go quickly through those as well or did you get the time you needed to really set everything up? No, pretty much you have to. That's the one thing. If you're doing those, you have to go with what you know, microphone choice wise, uh, room wise. I generally wouldn't do them in a room I didn't know. So I'd know where to set people up. Uh, and you pretty much have to take off running. You've got the time that it takes them to get the song together in order to get the mix together. I might have 15, uh, 10 minutes with each musician, just making sure there's no buzz and hums and 15 minutes to get a drum sound and then bang, you're, you're on. Hmm. Again, that's fun. That's the fun of it to me. For me, it's awesome. It's, yeah. you know, it, there's nothing like it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's excitement. That's for sure. I saw somewhere where you moved to Italy for a while. I did. Well, I was back at Hollywood Sound, and Hollywood Sound was, I wouldn't say losing its reputation, but a lot of the top clientele had gone elsewhere, and I wasn't really happy with the material I was working on, so I made a choice either to completely get out of the business or have a change of venue, and I had hitchhiked all through North, or Eastern, or Western Europe and uh, Northern Africa when I was younger, when I was still in high school. And when I went to Italy, people just treated me fantastically. And so I wanted to go back there and live and find out why these people were so warm and nice. And so I moved there and uh, took two weeks of Italian lessons and moved to Italy. Lived there for two years. Got a job offer in a, in a castle outside of Como overlooking a forest. So included a room in the castle overlooking the forest. I took that job. Well, that's not so bad. What was the studio like there? You know, it was, there were two studios. It was originally called Stone Castle Studios. Uh, one of the studios, not the one I was working in, was bringing in a lot of outside clientele. Yes, I believe did one of their albums there. Actually, I know they did because they were doing it during the time that I uh, was living there. We were doing a lot of local Italian groups, more pop dance-oriented music. The owner of my studio was in a, a band that were kind of the Beatles of Italy. They were called Ipu, and they'd been through three generations of fans. If we went anywhere for dinner, it was a mob scene. It was, it was kind of fun. 
but I basically used that time to, I bought a custom built bicycle and I rode my bike through the mountains and around Lake Como and stuff and had a good life for, for that year and a half, two years. And then what made you decide to come back? Well, my mother got cancer. So mm. That was the primary impetus behind my coming back. Also, I kind of, once again, I, I think it's a, there's a bit of a thread in my career in that if I'm not enjoying what I'm working on, I, I change. And musically, it wasn't fulfilling what I wanted to be working on there. Uh, Lifestyle-wise, it was phenomenal, but musically, it was not. So I knew that I wanted to, there was, I had something more to, to learn and more to do. So that begs the question, is that why you got into scoring? You know, I, I got into scoring, I had, when I came back, I took a job at Oceanway Recording because I needed clientele. And the best way to get clientele is work at one of the top studios and meet people. So through that, working there, I worked with a lot of top producers and engineers and all kinds of people. And shortly after that time, I was going independent again. And both Mick Gazowski and Frank Wolf recommended me to Michel Columbier. He was looking for a new mixer. So I wound up doing four years of film scoring with Michelle. Mm. That was just phenomenal for me. I, I love that. Yeah. Because, you know, after having gotten my feet wet in the ocean way size rooms, it, it wasn't, they weren't necessarily doing the big scoring like the stages, but I felt I had enough under my belt and uh, Michelle was kind enough to take me on and teach me the ropes as it were. Wow. What a great education. Oh, it's phenomenal. I mean, I think that, I've been incredibly fortunate throughout some of my choices as well, even back to the Hollywood sound days and then the punk rock days in the studios and in the live, just being open to experimentation and then going back and sitting behind some of the greatest engineers and producers throughout the ocean way time was phenomenal working on some of the huge records there. Who do you feel like you learned the most from? So hard to say. There were so many different characters that came through during that time. I think I learned a tremendous, I mean, I think there's an education to be had from people who you don't like the work of just as much as the people who you do like the work of, you know, to be sitting there and watching what they're doing and loving the end result and then realizing how they got to that or hating the end result and realizing what you won't do. Or, you know, seeing a session just blow up and say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So I don't know that there's any one person. I mean, Don was, was a great person to watch how he stayed out of the way of the artist, but yet guided them in a way that they came out with the best product possible. Uh, T-Bone Burnett was another one. Uh, he ended up hiring me and I ended up cutting uh, Mr. Jones, the first uh, Counting Crows single mm. wow. with him. But he was a great guy to watch, very musically involved, both he and Don. Do you feel like you had a mentor somewhere along the way? I got a lot of mentors. Uh, you know, Ed Cherney was fantastic to me when I was at that uh, early stages of coming back to Ocean Way. Um, you know, I don't know that... I worked with a lot of great people back in the Hollywood sound days. I don't know that there would be a, a mentor during that time, but I would say Ed Cherney stands out at the Ocean Way time. Yeah, I've done some projects with him, and I have to say they were a huge amount of fun. 
everybody's always smiling yeah. with him around. Exactly. I mean, it sounded great, but that was almost a byproduct of just the vibe of the session. And that's a that's a very important lesson because you can be. I've met a lot of guys who are are great engineers and they understand mic technique and they understand a lot of the stuff that perhaps isn't taught in schools nowadays. So the kids don't get it, but they're really clinical guys and, and they're not really fun to be around. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of that is creating an environment, both from the producer standpoint and from the engineer standpoint, an environment that, that promotes creativity and allows the artist to be as comfortable as possible. Okay, that being said, yes, that's absolutely true in music recording and when you're doing albums, but how does that translate to the more clinical environment of scoring? You have to be on the money in both those instances. You can't be goofing off, per se. Yeah. You still, you still have to be doing the job. I think in scoring, especially in the TV world, um, that I got into a couple of years ago, it's, it's much more about getting it done and getting it done quickly. Um, and getting the musicians in and out because we have so many different ensembles that we're doing throughout one session or two sessions. It's, but it still doesn't mean you, you can't be kind and friendly and have a decent time. I used to produce television for a while. And one of the things I always noticed when we had a crew that were basically TV people that were used to doing like ENG and stuff, they were great because they would set up, they would go, it would be done, you wouldn't have to worry. When we got film people in, they would be perfectionists and they would be just making everybody crazy over, oh, that light has to move over here. It'll stop everything till I move the light. Oh, wait, there's something wrong here. It's more of an art form than it is, you know, TV... Up until recently, I think, because I think the change in TV now, and it's, I don't know whether it's TV or it's not really TV, it's like the Netflix and the Amazon shows, they're actually quasi-movie projects anyway, because they're very interested in the, in the quality. It's not just turning out episodic television that, as long as it's good enough, it's okay. I think that they are just as interested in every aspect of the quality of of these big shows as anyone in a film is interested in that. What do you feel the difference is besides that from working on television and working on a film? My experience has been it's a, it, well, no, actually anything outside of the one show I did uh, for Amazon has been that there's a smaller group of people involved in the decision-making in the television groups as opposed to the film groups. The film groups seemed to have a lot of people that were all at the sessions and everybody had an opinion on something. And um, But that being said, with the Mozart in the Jungle, every one of the directors and writers and everybody were, were very involved in every aspect of the product from the beginning to the end. So it was a little different than other television that I've worked on. Congratulations on your Emmy on that, by the way. Uh, Thank you very much. That was fun. That was a fun night. Did you know that it might be presented as, as a nominee when you're doing it? Did you understand the quality yeah. as you're doing it? I mean, I understood the quality, but to be honest, myself as the score mixer, 
would never have been nominated. The nomination goes to the post mixer, the guys who hit playback on the sets, those kind of guys. The only reason he, the post mixer, Andy Daddario, liked my work so much that he had to petition the Academy to include me on the nomination. Wow. So it was certainly not a thought that was going through my mind while we were doing it. I was just trying to do the best job I could. And quite frankly, I was loving doing it because it included anything from a rock and roll track to small, small orchestral ensembles. So it kind of played into a lot of my different wheelhouses that uh, I have. And it, so it was a lot of fun to stretch. You have a palette of experience. It's probably a little wider than most people I talk to. Because again, you've gone from punk rock at one extreme and then right. orchestral recording on another and, and everything in between. Is there something that you find more difficult to do for whatever reason? Let me think about that. More difficult. More challenging. You know, not really. I mean, I love all of it so much. It's all different. It's different skill sets. For me, the most challenging thing in the beginning of any project is getting to know the cast of characters, mm. whether it's the band and the hierarchy in the band or, you know, who needs special attention to TV film, the people that I'm delivering the product to and who needs to be pleased and, and what their likes and dislikes are. Don't know that that answered your question but no it's really interesting you should say that because usually someone has a preference I, well i'd rather do this because and maybe it's because again it's more in their wheelhouse but you've done so much that, that you're comfortable going across everything and, and probably enjoy it i guess going from one thing to another I, I, I love every aspect of it i mean i gotta say that there's there's a, an incredible excitement to being with a new band and working through material and getting them a product that they're happy with. And then there's a tremendous excitement to be on a scoring stage with a full orchestra and, you know, a time, the time crunch that is there and the excitement of the, of the music coming to fruition finally with all these great musicians. Are you a Decatree guy? I am. I am. Yeah. Very much so. What are you using on the tree? You know, uh, M50s, when I can get ones that I like, I find them unbeatable, honestly. It's, it's a little difficult. Uh, I, don't, I believe Alan still has three that I used to rent. I honestly have not done big scoring stage stuff in a while. I did this, uh, the Mozart in the Jungle was all medium size. Uh, ensembles at best. So I wasn't necessarily decatreeing. I was stereoing everything. Mm -hmm. And stereo meaning space pair and spot mics? Yes. And then I did a lot of it um, in uh, the Moroccan room. And that size room worked really well for what we were doing. String ensemble with some woodwinds added to it in the back and maybe some horns. How long have you had your studio? Um, I bought the house about 15 years ago, and I, I, I started building it right away. It's kind of the reason I bought the house. I was living down in San Pedro, and I felt if I was going to build a studio, I didn't want to do it in San Pedro. I wanted to do it somewhere where I'd be around record label people, and they could come by and listen to mixes. 
So I found this place in Laurel Canyon and pretty much uh, looked for, talked to some designers and started within a year of having bought the house. Did you bring a designer in? I did. George Oxberger, I wound up hiring to do the design, which, you know, no slouch. Hard to get any better. <laughs> so he came in and did the design. And then oddly enough, I was, it's in the back. What happened is I found this house that has an extra deep garage. It had a workshop in back of the garage. So that's why I chose this house. So it's in the back of a garage space. So as my garage door was open and I was breaking ground, I was thinking, you know, George is well-respected and a fantastic designer, but maybe I should have consulted with one of the younger designers. They may have had new techniques or something that George is not aware of or space-saving ideas or something. And as my garage door was open and I was starting to work on the studio, a guy in a BMW pulls up and he says, are you the proud owner of that yellow Mini Cooper? I said, well, yes, I have two classic Mini Coopers, a 66 and a 63. I said, why? He says, well, I'm looking for somebody to work on my Mini Moke. I said, you know, I've built my Mini Coopers from the ground up. I know how they work and I know how to work on them, but I don't have time to work on them anymore. I'm in the music business. And he says, oh, I'm in the music business as well. I said, what do you do? I build, I design and build recording studios. Uh, I said, what's your name? He says, Vincent Van Hoff. Oh, geez. <laughs> Vincent Van Hoff was my neighbor. Wow. So we became close friends. He came, sat down, looked at George's design, loved, of course, he has tremendous amount of respect for George. He added some trapping in the back, which I did add. And I actually, he, he sat here and did a sketch with me at the console and what I should add and, and trapping in the back. And I had him sign it. So that's one of my, unfortunately now keepsakes from uh, our friendship is uh, my hand drawn <laughs> control room drawing by Vincent. Only in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he was, he was a great guy. So that was kind of the culmination and I built it myself with one other guy mm -hmm. uh, over the period of about a year and a half. And then as I was starting to build it, I would tell my neighbors just so they didn't turn me into the city because they would see me bringing in lots of drywall and all kinds of stuff. And one of my neighbors said, well, that's interesting because we are about to close our studio. They had a place called Post Sound down on Sunset Boulevard. Phil Soretti. Are you Phil, kidding? Phil Soretti <laughs> is my neighbor across the street. Oh, okay. <laughs> so... This is Phil Soretti's board. He bought it brand new. Uh, I am the second owner of this console. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about that. You're sitting in front of a, a 48 input Amec 2500. And the reason why it sparks some interest in me, I was a sales manager for Amec for a couple of years in the 80s. So I'm very familiar with those consoles and familiar with Graham Langley and, and everybody and been to the factory multiple times and knew a lot about what was going on with Amex. I understand, as you do, the value of them and how great they do sound underappreciated, I think. Yeah, exactly. It was Rupert Neve's first design when he went over there. So it has his electronic genius in it. It just isn't a Neve, so. He didn't do much, actually. He changed a few things, but it's mostly Graham, as I, okay. I, I understood it. I remember actually going to Dean Jensen as well, because... Dean Jensen was next door to the AMEC office in North Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And there was going to be some collaboration, but I, 
And Dean would not have anything to do with us until he saw some schematics. So I remember taking a 2500 schematic over and him looking at it and saying, yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. Okay, let's do something. Nice. You know, again, it was a sign off from two people that know what they're doing. Well, you'll, I've got a funny story to tell you about the AMAC. I was, I had had a few texts over because I was having some problems and at one point, I mean, I started in electronics, so I know a bit about electronics, and I can tell when somebody's fishing down the wrong river. Yeah. So I was a little frustrated, and I talked to uh, a friend of mine that has a studio down in the South Bay, and he said, you know, there's a guy that you have to get if you need a tech for an AMAC. And I said, okay. He said, uh, his name's Martin Arthurs. I said, okay. So I call up Martin Arthurs. Martin comes over. He walks into my control room. He looks around, looks at the console looks up at me, looks at the console again for a long time, and he goes, mind if I pull the main module? No, knock, knock yourself out. Pulls out and he goes, yep, MA. This was okayed by me when I was working on the factory. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I have the right guy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that. I remember we had Mitch Easter. I don't know if you remember him. He was a producer who was kind of responsible for REM. They came from the same place in Georgia. And he had a studio and he bought a name, Angela. And he was having some bizarre problems that nobody could sort out. So when the guys from the factory came over, Greg Hogan, and he and I traveled down to rural Georgia. I mean, it was really out in the sticks. And Greg did the same thing. He pulled the module and he looked and he says, yeah, that's me. But the interesting thing is he found a cold solder joint that nobody else would ever find. It was one of those things. I looked at him and I was amazed. It's like, how did you even understand that that might even be there? Right. But he did Lead it to that. Did it in a flash. Those are the guys you want working on your console. Trust me. No kidding. And then Benno, do you, are you familiar with Benno May? Absolutely. Well, Benno came in one day and because he wanted to hear my monitors because other people had heard the monitors and they liked them. And he looked at the console and he said, do you have the uh, schematics for this? I said, yeah. He goes, are you working this weekend? I said, no, don't have anything going on. He goes, you mind if I take two modules and the stereo bus module and the schematics home with me? It's <laughs> like, knock yourself out. So he completely modded the two modules so I could hear them with what he felt. He changed out the VCAs to that corporation VCAs as well as changed over some of the uh, the input and output chips, as well as went through the stereo bus. I put them in, and it was phenomenal. So then he sold me all the parts, and I modded all the rest of the channels myself. So it's it's pretty highly modified at this point. How long did it take you to do that? Hey, you know, I did it slowly. I did it in buckets. Uh, mm-hmm. So I would do 10 modules at a time, and then put them back in, and then keep working, and then do another 10 modules. Yeah. It was fun. Because, of course, it never, you know, I'm not a full-time tech. It's like anything. If you can play drums and you don't play drums, you can kind of play drums. But you're not going to play drums like a pro that plays drums every day. Yeah. So, as a tech, I, I, I know how to do a lot of this stuff, but I'm certainly not a great tech. So, there would be the occasional module that went back in and didn't work. And I'd have to then troubleshoot what I had done wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That being said, okay, so when you first created your room, I suspect that you did it with the idea of doing records in mind, right? Yeah. And then you get into scoring. Was there any major changes that you had to do in order to accommodate that? No, most of the, 
this console was come came from a scoring facility, so it had a lot of unusual uh, aspects to it for mixing score, because that's what Phil had ordered it for, and that's what he was doing with it. Um, but honestly, nowadays, most of the scoring stuff, I have to do it so quickly, and I have to deliver so many different versions to different people at different times, I'm doing most of that work in the box. I do my records, like I'm mixing a record right now, I broke it out onto the console, and I absolutely, it makes me smile every time I get to do that. But the scoring work, because of the deliverables, I wind up doing it primarily in the box. Amazing, huh? Everybody's gone over. Yeah, I mean, I still go back, though. I'm one of the few people that goes back. And honestly, I'm shocked when I do. Like this particular record, it was a very acoustic record. And as soon as I started mixing it on the console, it just came together so much quicker, so much more easily for me being a tactile guy and uh, being used to that from before. I just, uh, I love having the option. Okay, that being said, you have both paths available to you. So when you're in the box, what are you doing in order to get closer to the sound of the console? Is there an approach? Is there a series of plugins? Is there something that you're using that you feel gets you closer to that? Well, I mean, you know, if you're just talking plugins, I'd probably say I'm a fan of the UAD stuff. So Mm -hmm. that tends to be a little more analog-y and a little more, because I've got, I mean, I didn't turn you around, but I've got a whole rack of, of Neve compression and stay levels and other things in the rack as well that used to travel with me from studio to studio. And many times if you hear, I mean, I'm sure you've gone through this as well. You, you hear something and it's slightly harsh and you say, wow, you know, a stay level would be great on that. It would pop it out and it would mellow it out. Um, but for years, the plug-in version of whatever that happened to be didn't do the nice thing that the hardware version did. But a lot of the UAD stuff is is getting closer to that. And I think just taking care to make sure your gain structure doesn't get out of control. Because in the box, it can get out of control and still be, you can still be living with it. It's not clipping necessarily, but it's kind of out of control. And you find when you back a lot of that stuff back, you start to get back your depth and some of your other things. Even though you're not necessarily clipping, you're still defeating your uh, the quality of your mix. Are you using anything like um, saturation plugins or anything like that? I have yet, and I, I can't say that I've tried them all, but I have yet to find any that I like. I do like the ATR tape machine as an overall, you know, I will put that on the stereo bus from time to time if that's what I'm looking for, just because I... You know, for me, the ATR quarter inch was my favorite sounding machine to go to. And I feel they've done a very good job of that. And it's also very versatile and you can change formulations and over bias and change your tape speed and find something that works for that particular mix. I've never been convinced myself. And I kind of felt like I never really liked what was coming off the tape machine as compared to what was coming off the console to begin with. You know, it was one of these things where, like, I want it to sound like what's coming off the console. Why doesn't it? So why should I go back and emulate something that I really didn't like? <laughs> you know, is the way I look at it. No, I totally agree. I, I think that 
a, for a lot of people, it it had a gluing effect, which is what, you know, that's the buzzword they all talk about now. And I, like I said, I don't use it that often. It's only when I feel that is right for what I need. It's certainly not my go-to arsenal, but every once in a while, I'll pop that thing on and go, hmm, nice. I like it. What is the most fun thing for you to do in music? Wow. That's a tough question. Because, you know, the two main things that we do as engineers are tracking and mixing. And I, I, I equally love both of them for completely different reasons. Mixing, I'm by myself most of the time. I mean, almost all of my clients, a lot of them will send me files. I'll mix them and I'll send them a mix. Some of my clients are local. They'll come down once I'm done and we'll listen to it together and tweak it. So I have some interaction. But I get the majority of my interaction when I go to a big room to track. Then I'm actually seeing other engineer friends and producer friends in other rooms. So we used to live in multi-room facilities and not bump into people and be able to listen to other people's stuff. And we just don't get the opportunity to do that anymore. I'm starting to do it now with friends like Mick Kozowski came over here and we played each other's stuff. And I went over to his place and other engineers. I'm, I'm starting to try to do that just so that we have some more interaction like we used to have in the multi-room facility era. Yeah, everybody complains about that aspect where even on a social level, it was nice to be able to interact in the kitchen someplace or a lounge and you don't get that anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's why we have our audio lunch. I mean, that's, you know, that's one of my favorite things about that is I get to see a lot of people and talk about what are you doing and, yeah. you know, how are you doing it and just how are you doing and how's your family and yeah. other aspects of life in general. Okay, Clark, last question for you. And sure. thank you for your time. And also thank you for the great audio. I can barely see the mic, but it sort of looks like a 47. It is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I decided I'd try and give you better audio, so I got out my Apogee Element 88, took a 47 fed into it for my uh, my Skype feed. Yeah, it sounds terrific and far better <laughs> than what I'm used to getting, so thank you for that. Well, my pleasure. So you've been doing this on your own for a long time as, a, as an independent. What's the best piece of business advice that you learned along the way or maybe you received from somebody? I mean... There are so many of them probably to get your ego out of the way and, and make it about the music, make it about either the piece of music or the artist that you're working with. So many times we get wrapped up in, not we, because I can't speak for anybody else, but throughout my career, because it's been so long, I've had periods where I thought, well, look at me, you know, you're lucky to have me recording your music and that, pardon my French, but that's just bullshit and getting rid of that and and understanding that the most important thing to do is serve the piece of music and or the artist and make them as comfortable as they can so that they then get the best out of their piece of music, I think is the, and I've, I've learned that I've had that told to me and I've also learned it by watching, by observation of people who do and don't do that. You can find out more about Clark at clarkgermain.com. That's C-L-A-R-K-G-E-R-M-A-I-N, Clark Germain, 
com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.